ready to start. The title of our message today is Asking for Divine Judgment, Genesis 18, 22 through 33. Let me ask you a question as we start our study today. Here's the question. Can we expect God, can we expect God to be aware of everyone, of everything at all times? Can we expect God to be aware of everything with everyone all the time? I found this interesting little, little funny thing about some children who were in a private Christian school. It's entitled, God is Watching. The children were lining up for lunch. It was time for lunch in the cafeteria. And this Christian school provided lunch for those who, you know, we're ready to eat, and so the children were told on the way to lunch, on the loudspeaker, that there were only enough apples for every person to have one apple. There's only enough for one apple for every student, so only take one. So as they lined up for lunch to, to prepare their lunch, the apples were the first thing at the table, and a very astute teacher had placed this note next to the apples, take only one, God is watching. You would hope that that would cause students not to take more than one apple because there was only one for each student. At the end of the long line, at the end of the table, was a large bowl containing chocolate chip cookies. A very astute, very smart student put this sign next to the chocolate chip cookies. It read, take as many as you want. God is watching the apples. Is that true that God may be watching the beginning of the line, but he's not watching the end of the line? I think the reality is that most of us would like to live our lives with this understanding that the possibility is that we might be able to do something where God has not seen or he has not watched us do that. I mean, all of us probably more than likely have done something or we're in the process of doing something and we kind of look up and we kind of think, well, maybe God's not watching me do this. But the reality is that God sees everything about everyone all the time. God is never unaware. God is not an absentee landlord. He did not place us on this planet and then all of a sudden just walk away and turn the other way and just not understand, not know what is going on with every person everywhere all the time. And so as we take a look at this passage that we're going to be reading today, I think we have a, an understanding that Abraham is, is coming to God with this an awareness that God is knowledgeable about what's going on in Sodom. God has not turned the other way. He's not ignored. He's not been an absentee landlord. He is well aware of what's been going on in Sodom. And because of that, God has informed Abraham that he is about to bring judgment upon the Sodomites. And Abraham is somewhat perplexed by that. And we see this incredible time where Abraham approaches the Lord and he begins to intercede. He begins to ask that as God inflicts his justice, that he would provide divine mercy. Be merciful in your justice. 
And so I want us to take a look at that today. I want us to understand that there are seven principles for intercessory prayer as we consider the coming judgment of the Lord. As somebody this week asked me when we we're going to get to the positive stuff, because last week, honestly, could be seen as a little bit negative. I mean, we talked about the judgment coming, but it's hard for us to miss the positives without weighing out also the difficulties of what happens when those who do not profess faith in Christ and, and the end result of that disobedience. And so here Abraham is grappling, he is struggling, he is interceding on behalf of the Sodomites for the mercy of the Lord in his judgment. As we have studied for the past couple of weeks, three have made their way to the tent where Abraham is camped out near where God had promised that he would receive this beautiful land many, many chapters ago. He's there in the promised land. And he's got the flap of his tent open, and he's sitting there at the entrance, and he sees these three sojourners coming. And as he approaches them, he recognizes and realizes that one of them is the Lord. And he bows before the Lord, and he offers the Lord a meal. And the Lord says, great, we'll take the meal. And so they sit down at the table, and Abraham has everything made ready, and Abraham serves, and then after serving, he stands by the side of the Lord, waiting on the Lord for anything that he might possibly need. At the end of the meal, the Lord invites him to the table, and they have a conversation. And the Lord then gives him a message. He says, Abraham, I want you to understand. Hey, Sarah, I want to make sure you're listening. So she kind of comes up, you know, close to the entrance and puts her ear to the door, and he speaks to Sarah and Abraham and says, Hey guys, I want you to know that the promise is about to be a reality in one year from now. You are going to have a son, the two of you, in your senior adult years. A supernatural act of God. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And he is going to be the one by which I'm going to bless you with a multitude, more than the stars in the sky, descendants from your marriage. That's the promise I'm going to fulfill. And then we saw how at the end of the meal, the Lord got up with his two angels and they proceed to walk towards Sodom. And it's somewhat of a hilly place. And as they're walking, Abraham, as a good host, accompanies them, but he goes further than any host could possibly go. He journeys with them as far as he's allowed to journey. And they're on a top of a hill now and they're looking down below and there's Sodom. And we learn in our text that as the two angels proceed to go towards Sodom, it is here that Abraham now seizes the moment and he intercedes on behalf of those that are about to be judged. So what are the seven principles that we're going to learn very quickly in regard to how we can ask for divine mercy when we know that judgment is coming? For judgment is coming. We can't avert it, we cannot stop it, but we can be prepared for it, and we can intercede on behalf of those who are not prepared, hoping and believing and trusting that they will then be prepared when it finally arrives. So, seven principles when asking for mercy. Number one, perceive the opportunity. It's important that we perceive the opportunity. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. The angels and Jesus, the Lord... We were with Abraham, walking side by side, got to the top of the hill. They saw Sodom below, and the two angels proceed then to part company from Jesus, the Lord, and from Abraham. And they proceed to walk toward down to Sodom to inflict the judgment of the Lord. It says, however, but 
Abraham, notice, still stood before the Lord. On top of this hill, as they are looking down below, they see Sodom and they see Gomorrah and Jesus and Abraham watch the two angels proceed towards Sodom to inflict and to assess the judgment of God. And it is here that Abraham suddenly recognizes and realizes that this is the opportunity to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the moment. Because you see, to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah during the judgment would have meant that that was too late. Judgment is already happening, and the Lord would not stay his judgment. To intercede after the judgment would also mean too, it would be too late. And so Abraham recognized and realized that these two angels are going down there to inflict judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is the opportunity that he must seize. It's, it's, it's an opportunity that he must take before judgment falls, and he is about to intercede now for Sodom and Gomorrah on behalf of them when they cannot intercede and will not intercede for themselves unto the Lord. This is the moment. This is the opportunity. Not during, not after, but before. And we must understand that this is the opportunity that we have. Judgment is coming to America. Judgment is coming to our world. Christ, who promised to return, will someday return. And there will be a great white throne judgment seat of the Lord. And until that day, we must seize this, our opportunity to do all that we can, to give all that we can, to become all that we can, and to intercede for all those that we can until that moment happens. This is our opportunity. We cannot, when we're in that great cloud of witnesses behind Christ at that great white throne judgment, and we look down there below and we see relatives and friends and coworkers and neighbors and people we played football or basketball with down there about to be judged, we cannot no longer then intercede from that great cloud of witnesses. So, oh Lord, stay your justice, stay your judgment. We can't, it's too late, it's over. The time to intercede is before the judgment seat begins. It is now, and this is our opportunity, and we're not sure how long of a window of an opportunity that we have, but until the Lord returns and the judgment seat of Christ takes place, this is our opportunity to intercede for those who may not intercede for themselves and may not even have a desire for God, but we can come, fall on our face before God, and lay their names one by one before the throne of grace and of mercy and plead on their behalf. This is the moment, church. For one of these days, the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together within the clouds and we'll stand before the Lord on judgment day and the opportunity will be gone. We need to seize the opportunity. So once we perceive the opportunity, step two, we need to pursue Intimacy. We must pursue intimacy in the meantime. Notice the first part of verse 23. Then Abraham drew near. He drew near. Abraham is standing still before the Lord as the angels are going down towards Sodom. And as they are standing there, Abraham turns to the Lord and he steps up and gets extremely close physically in the presence of the Lord. This is a bold move on his part. Back in this day and time, it would be very rare, much less at all, if anybody would ever approach. If you remember when uh, Moses was in the, in the wilderness and he saw the, the burning bush and he turned to look at the burning bush and God said, don't look. Remember that? 
Don't approach. Don't turn. And so we have a tendency to sort of misrepresent and misunderstand here. This is a bold move on Abraham's part. What would give Abraham the boldness to move toward the Lord? Because, you know, in the Bible, there's only one person in the Bible that is ever described as being a friend of God. That's Abraham. Abraham is described as being a friend of God. A friend. You know, I have a lot of acquaintances, but many of us have very few friends. Abraham is a friend of God. He has been communicating. He has been living. He has been walking. He has been following. He has been communicating with God the whole time. This is not a one-time prayer. This is not an emergency prayer. This is a prayer. This is a bold move on his part because he has taken the time to develop an intimate love relationship with God, with the Lord himself. And as a result of that intimacy, that relationship, that friendship that they've had for quite some time, He then turns and he moves closer to the Lord to give and to make his petition. He's drawing closer to God. You know, I'm convinced that most of us only draw close to God when there's an emergency, when there's a need, when there's a crisis, or when there's something that we want. Abraham has been spending Many years building on this intimate love relationship with the Lord. And now that there's a need, he steps into this relationship that has already been developed, that's already been formed. And in that intimate moment, he then makes his request. How intimate are you with the Lord? How much time do you spend in prayer? How close would you say your relationship is with the Lord? And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why many of us are not seeing our answered prayers is because we have not developed the intimacy level with the Lord that we need to develop in our day-to-day walk with Him. The Bible says in, in John 4, 8, draw near to God and He will what? Draw near to you. The responsibility is for us to draw near to God. God knew all that there was to know about Abraham, but Abraham needed to draw near to God so that he could become acquainted and know and understand God. And in that understanding of God, he knew that it was all right for him to step up and to draw near to the Holy of Holies, to the Lord God Almighty himself, and he drew near to God. We can do that in Jesus. We can. And we must pursue this intimate love relationship with him in the course of our intercessory prayer so that as we come and lay our requests, our petitions, and those that we're concerned about at his feet, we are building on a love relationship with him that's not just built upon gimme, 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 but it's built upon a relationship of intimacy, of love, and trust. So we must, number one, perceive opportunity. We must pursue intimacy. Number three, we must profess honesty. It's important when we pray to profess honesty. And as we read this text, there's a lot of people, as I have studied over the week, who have different understandings about what all is being written here. And and I know some of you go out there and check what I'm trying to say, and you can find many different scholars and many different commentaries that will say many different things. But in my study, in putting all this together, I believe that, that... that Abraham in his prayer is being as honest as he possibly can with the Lord. And I think it's important for us to be honest when we pray. To be honest. 
to be honest about our concerns, to be honest with him about our questions, to be honest with him about our fears, to be honest with him about our emotions for our loved ones who are possibly about to receive the judgment or the consequences of their sin. And, and, and he lays his heart down before the Lord, and he's being completely honest with the Lord. And as we read this, I want you to understand that, that he's not asking God not to judge these people. It's not what he's asking. But I believe that he's asking God to withstay his judgment so that they might come to repentance and faith in the Lord. Let's take a look at the text. Beginning with the second part of verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham's not schooling God about God. It would be foolish to tell God or to take God to the class and make him sit down and take notes about himself. Hey, God, let me, let me remind you who you are. We don't need to do that. And that's not what he's doing. Verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And then he answers his own question, because the question is, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Are you going to judge, in judging the wicked, are the righteous now going to be swept under that judgment? Are they going to receive the judgment? There are times in the Bible when the righteous are so close to the unrighteous that they wind up being recipients of the discipline and the wrath of God. For example, in Israel... Uh, when Babylon came and took captives from Babylon and took them back to Babylonia for those years that they were there, righteous people suffered because of the unrighteousness of Israel and they were held captive in Babylon for those years. Sometimes when we are living too close to the enemy, we can become recipients of the judgment or the wrath of God. Now, we... As Christians are not going to suffer the wrath of God, but we can suffer the consequences or the discipline of God in course of that judgment. And so he's wondering, hey, and then he answers his own question. Far be it from you to do such a thing. You're not going to do that. I know you're not. I understand that you are righteous, and I understand that in your judgments and in your justice that you are a right God. You are impartial. You are fair. You know the facts. You see the reality of a person's heart and their mind, and you know exactly what they have done and what they've pretended to do and what they have not done. You understand all that, and so because you're righteous, your judgments are righteous, and so therefore you're judgments are going to be fair. He said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Absolutely. So what, what, what on earth is he saying? I think Abraham is struggling a little bit. Because you see, Abraham knows that uh, were it not for God's grace, he too would be judged. I mean, have we not studied in these last several weeks how imperfect Abraham is? He's a man, a human being like we are. And he has had moments of incredible faith and he's followed the Lord, but he's had incredible moments of failure and he's disobeyed the Lord. And we have seen that, that Abraham has been saved by grace through faith. He's not righteous in and of himself. The Bible says that God imputed his righteousness on Abraham and made him righteous. So God has been gracious to Abraham. And Abraham, I think, as he's standing before the Lord, recognizes and realizes, God, were it not for your grace, I too would be judged you have every right to judge me as you're judging them 
And we, I think, as we are interceding for those who are lost, must understand were it not for the grace of God, we too would be condemned. We too would be judged. We too would suffer the wrath of God. But it's because of our faith in Jesus who died on the cross and gave us the victory and became then our righteousness and the wrath of God was placed upon him and God's justice was inflicted upon him. Our sin was placed upon him and now through faith in him, because of God's grace, we now are recipients of God's mercy. And Abraham is aware of that. But I think Abraham is also aware of the reality that Lot's in Sodom, his nephew, I mean, he's been, with, he's been with Lot a long time. Lot's father passed away when he was young, and Abraham took him under his wing in his care like an adopted son. And Lot understood that God had spoken to Abraham, and Lot moved with him to Canaan, to the promised land. And he messed up when he chose to live in Sodom. He messed up when, when uh, he was taken captive by those invading forces and, and Lot was taken prisoner and they headed up north and, and Abraham took his army and they went up there and they liberated Lot from his captivity, if you remember that story. And, and he set him free and Lot went back to Sodom. And, and, and he's being, Lord, I've got family in Sodom. And judgment is about to fall on Sodom, and I have family there. And I think he's pleading for Lot. He's going to plead for his family. But I think he's also pleading for the Sodomites. Some of us have family that we need to be interceding for. We know that they're lost. We know that they're unsaved, and we need to be interceding for their behalf. But how many of us are interceding for our neighbors? How many of us are interceding for our community? How how many of us are interceding for the lostness of Wichita? We have a lot of lostness in Wichita. And is interceding for the Sodomites who have no desire for God, who are living a wicked, rebellious life, unconcerned about the judgments that's about to come. They don't care about God. They're descendants of Noah. And they don't care about God. And Abraham cares about them. He is being reminded that when that invading force came and conquered the Sodomites and took some of them prisoner, and the Sodomite king hid and ran for his life, he not only liberated Lot, but he liberated some Sodomites, and he took back the spoils that they took from Sodom, and he gave it back to the Sodomite king, and when he did that, he gave glory to God. He said, the reason my small force was able to come overcome that large force was because of the power of God. He gave witness and testimony that was God, Jehovah, that liberated him and restored his wealth back unto him. That Sodomite king saw uh, Abraham give one-tenth of all that he took to Melchizedek in Jerusalem to God as a, as a consecration to the Lord, and, and he witnessed that. And Abraham is wondering, just maybe there's somebody in Sodom that is grateful for what God's done. They've recognized that we're not for the grace of God to free them and restore them. And I'm, and I'm just hoping, and, and he's praying, that, that just maybe there will be some who will be sensitive and open to the gospel of a salvation by grace through faith, and they'll follow the Lord, just maybe. And he's asking for God for some more time. 
Well, where do you get that? I, I'm going I'm to linger here more than any other point that we're going to look at. I want you to turn with me to uh, Genesis 15, 16, real quick. Just turn there real quick. I believe Abraham is a pretty smart fella. <laughs> I think Abraham is the kind of guy that, that catches things quickly. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, we see God and Abraham having a one-on-one. And, and in this encounter, God promises that he's going to have descendants far numerous than the stars in the skies and, and more, than, more grains than there are in the sand on the earth. But he makes an interesting statement. He says, hey, Abraham, what's going to happen is your, your people, all these relatives, are going to be held captives for 400 years in Egypt. And after 400 years of captivity, I'm going to free them, and they're going to return back to this very spot that you're standing on, this very spot, and it's then that they're going to receive the land. You're going to have all these, in, all these descendants first, and then they're going to come back and finally receive the land after they spent 400 years in captivity in Egypt. What I'm going to be doing in the meantime, when you come back 400 years from now, there are some people who live here called the Amorites. They are descendants of Ham, who are descendants of Noah. And they have no regard for God. But I'm going to give them 400 years, 400 years to repent. But they're not. (laughs) And it's then I'm going to bring judgment on them. They won't be here, and you can inherit the land. Notice this incredible statement, though, in 1516. Notice God says their iniquity is not yet complete. Their iniquity is not yet complete, meaning that they have not exhausted the patience of God. They are wicked, they are vile, they are sinful, but God's saying they've not exhausted my mercy. They've not exhausted my grace. They will eventually, judgment will come. But in the meantime, And I think Abraham is thinking, God, remember the Amorites? You gave them 400 years. Can you not give these people a little more time to repent? Please. He's being honest about his compassion. He's being honest about his emotion. He's been honest about how he desires to see them come to faith and to follow Jehovah. He's sincere about this this desire for them to repent and to follow the Lord. But notice number four, he also projected humility. He was not only honest, but he was humble. Notice the text in verse 27. If you read this as a whole, you'll see that Abe's humility runs throughout this prayer, and he never assumes a position of, of, of pride He is constantly aware of his submission and his position before the Lord and his condition. Notice verse 27, and Abraham answered and said, after the Lord had said, okay, I'll spare them for 50, Abraham answered the Lord and he says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, I who am but dust and ashes. Ashes. You see, he knew that he was in the presence of Jehovah, of the Lord. And the closer he got to the Lord, the more aware of his condition he became. And as he became more aware of his condition, he became more and more humble before the Lord. 
I'm convinced the closer we get to the Lord, the more humble we become. If you meet somebody who is arrogant, who is prideful, who is cocky, that's a sign that they are far from the Lord. Because the closer you get to the Lord, the more humble you become because His holiness, His glory, His righteousness, His perfection is reflected then upon our, impact, our imperfections, our unholiness, and we become more aware of our unworthy condition before the one who is all worthy, and we are driven to our knees in humility to intercede for others. This is not a prideful thing. I mean, we know that, that the Lord says in first and. 1 Peter 5, 5, that the Lord rejects the proud. He rejects the proud. And if you want your prayers to be heard by the Lord, as you intercede for others, you do so in humility. You don't do it from a position of arrogance. You don't do it from a position of, well, I'm your kid, God, and you've got to answer me. It's one of humility in recognition of who he is and who you are. As you bow before him in recognition, Lord, you are the creator. I am the creation who was made out of nothing. And without you, God, I am nothing. And without you, God, they are nothing. And we depend solely and completely on you. The only way they're going to turn, Lord, is with you. Number five, we need to proceed reverently. To proceed with reverence. Notice again in his prayer, three times we see the word anger mentioned in this prayer. Anger. And the word anger simply means righteous indignation. Verse 30. Then he said, Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And the Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 31. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Now, take a look at what he says in 30. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Have you ever been in a grocery store line when your kids were small, and they're in that little seat, and you pass by when you're about to check out all of that stuff they put there? Designed to do what? Entice who? Mostly your children. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen children, and they scream and they scream because they want something that they have seen, and they are persisting until they get it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was that age, my parent would have taken me out of that seat, beat me on the rear a few times, told me to shut up and put me back, and I would have shut up. You do that today, you'll get arrested. And we're not doing those kinds of things anymore. And, and children, I see them do it more times than not. They are continually going, and so what Abraham is making sure that God understands, he's not going, don't get angry at me. I don't want to continue to ask and push your grace and your mercy to the extent where I am committing sin against you, and therefore you are righteous in your indignation, and you're disciplining me because I'm out of line. I don't want to step out of line here, Lord. I don't want to step beyond the boundaries of your permissiveness. I'm asking you, Lord, please be patient with me. I am being reverent in your 
in your presence, Lord. I'm not coming as a spoiled child, just constantly screaming and whining and complaining until you finally give me what I want. That's not how you intercede for someone or for something. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm doing it reverently because I have undertaken it to speak. I have undertaken this responsibility. Remember who you're in the presence of. And remember to be reverent before the Lord. And don't be a spoiled brat who insists on their way, holding God captive or holding God hostage until you get what you want. You're not that powerful. (laughs) You don't have that right. And so we need to understand we need to be really reverent when we intercede for others. Number six, we need to presume nothing. That's right. Presume nothing. What do you mean by that? That means presume that you're not completely sure exactly what God's will is and how he's going to work. And I'm convinced that Abraham was not completely sure about everything in regard to God's will. He was not presumptuous at all. In any aspect of this prayer, is he being presumptuous at all in regard to what God's will is and what God's purpose is? He understands and he knows that judgment's coming because of their sin and their wickedness. He knows that. But he's not presumptuous on the grace and the mercy, the justice or the righteousness of God. So notice his presumption, his lack of it, in verse 32. Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. Again, he says that. But notice what he says after that, this final time and his final request. And I will speak again, but this once. But I will speak again, but this once. Lord, just just one more time. I'm not being presumptuous about anything. I know your will is to bring judgment, but I'm not going to be presumptuous and ask you unless you let me do that. I'm asking for permission one more time. Just one more time. Did you notice how many times he uses the word suppose? Let me count it. How many times does he use suppose? Somebody count them and tell me. Come on. I'm not going to give you the answer. How many times in this prayer does he use suppose? More than one. More than two. How many? Five? Six? Go home and read. Suppose. Does that tell you he knows exactly what God's will is in regard to the sinfulness of Sodom? God, suppose. What if? He he is recognizing and acknowledging that he has limited ability to understand and know exactly what's going on in Sodom in regard to everyone and everything all the time. I think sometimes when you intercede with God, we have a tendency to place ourselves in a position of authority thinking that we know what's best rather than asking God what's best. 
When you think about when we come and we pray, we give God our list of expectations, our list of what we want him to do, our plans, our purposes, our goals, our objectives, rather than coming and say, Lord, what is it that you want to do here? I don't know, so reveal it to me in my intercessory prayer. Then lastly, notice his practice Trust or his. Look at the next slide, verse thirty-three. His practice. Trust. Sorry, you got the wrong thing on there. I did that. That's my mistake. It should be practice instead of presume nothing. Practice trust. You got trust on your outline. Say, I'm with you. Come on, I'm with you. Practice trust when you intercede. For the lost. I mean, there's, there comes a point where you just got to trust. You just have to trust the Lord. Uh, you got to trust Him. I mean, y- you can't trust yourself. You can't trust the pastor, really. I'll let you down. Amen? I'll let you down. Come on. Now, I know I'm 99.9% perfect, but... Trust the Lord when you intercede, that he knows what's best. Notice in verse 33, and the Lord, notice the Lord, Jesus, went his way. It's time to part company. And Jesus went his way when he, Jesus, had finished speaking to Abraham. The conversation is over. There's a time when you stop interceding, and, and, and this intercessory prayer time is over, and Abraham then returned to his place and returned to be doing the things that he should have been doing. Now, if you take a look at it, he prays 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, and 10, right? He stops at 10. Why didn't he go to 5? Nobody knows. He stopped with 10. Now, there are some who presume that more than likely, if you read on to the next chapter, that the angels tell Abraham, I mean, tell uh, Lot when they get there, uh, I want you to go find, you know, go get your, your daughters and your sons and your sons-in-law and tell them the judgment's coming and get out. Now, if you, if you put all that together... Some commentators want to suggest that there's possibly 10 people that are related to Lot who might be righteous. I mean, Abraham's banking on the fact that Lot has at least 10 family members or 10 people associated to him that are righteous. And so after he asked for 10 and the Lord said, hey, for 10, I'll stay the judgment. And he, okay, success. And he walks away. You learn later... You learn later, after the judgment comes in the next chapter, and Sodom is destroyed, that Abraham returns to this very spot, and he looks down and sees the destruction of Sodom, this very spot. And I wonder, while he's looking down there, if he thought, God, you didn't answer my prayer. But didn't he? He did spare the righteous. He spared Lot, Lot's wife, and his two daughters. He answered Abraham's prayer, and yet he still judged Sodom. He gave his mercy and his grace, and he let them escape judgment, the righteous. 
but he judged the unrighteous. So in essence, he answered Abraham's prayer. I'm here to tell you, God will answer your prayers. It may not be exactly like you think they're going to be answered, but he will answer your prayers. He answered Abraham's, and he will answer yours. If you will intercede on behalf of those who will not and cannot intercede for themselves. He may not answer it exactly like you expect or like you want, but he will eventually answer your prayers. Your prayers make a difference. This wasn't a waste of time for Abraham, and it's not a waste of time for you. One last passage, and I'll close. 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that which the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Notice what it says, not wishing that any should perish. God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Luke 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them out ahead, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, pray intercedingly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Are we a praying church, a church that prays for the lostness of our community and our city? I think God's tired of hearing about our ingrown toenails. You want me to say that again? I think God is tired of hearing about our ingrown toenails. I think God is tired of hearing about Aunt Sister Susie's headaches. And when we gather together, we have a group of people, 10 to 15 every Sunday, that pray. I hope they're praying for lostness more than they are praying about disease. We pray about disease more than we pray about lostness. God knows you're sick. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about disease, because he does say we should pray. And we should have the elders anoint us and lay hands on us and those kinds of things. I'm not saying, but we pray more about things that really don't matter than we do about the things that should matter, and the lostness of our community should matter. And the only difference that that's going to make in our community is if we pray. That's it. We have to pray. We must connect with Christ. So are you connected personally with Christ? Are you a friend of God? And the only way to be a friend with God is to trust Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. By faith or grace, or by grace through faith, you can switch him out either way. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Are you a friend of God? The only way to be his friend is to place your faith and trust in Jesus.
And today may be the day that you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Today may be the day that you step forward from this, from where you are, come down, take the hand of one of the pastors, and I want to follow these two in baptism like they did. Question number two, if you're saved, are you concerned about the lostness of others? I don't think most of us really think about it much. Are you ever at a light? Four corners and everybody's standing there and you look around and you wonder how many at this light are saved. When you're in a grocery store, do you ever think about how many are there in that grocery store? How many of them are saved? Well, we're in Wichita, Kansas. There's not many lost people there. Baloney. Are we really concerned? Are we really committed to prayer? Are we giving all we can? Are we going as often as we can? Are we sharing as often as we can? Are we serving in the name of Christ? Are we committed to those things, those activities that will be invested in the lives of others, that will affect eternity in their lives? Are we as a church really concerned about lost people? We're not here to put on a show. We're not here to attract people. We're here to proclaim the gospel and to see their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. The show is in another church in this community. Just go to any one of them out there. This is not a show. This is a church that is concerned about the lostness of those in this community right here around this church, in this city, in this state, and in this world. And we must rise to that which is coming. Judgment is coming to America. It's coming. It's coming. Judgment is coming. It's on the way. And in the meantime, we must connect, be concerned, and be committed to do all that we can. In the meantime. Because when it happens, it's too late. So what will you do? And what will be our response in the meantime? Let's pray. Good morning. Let me encourage you to come right on in. We get the privilege of starting this morning by uh, observing the ordinance of baptism.
This is my friend Kevin, and if you are part of Kevin's family or life group and you've come to Sporting to celebrate uh, this day in his life, would you stand and let us recognize you? <laughs> Kevin, let me ask you this. Do you know for certain that you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss, and is your desire to be marked as a follower of his? I have. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk. Oh, amen. Amen. Thank you, God. This is Joe. Joe's been coming to Emmanuel for quite a while. Uh, he was invited by his grandmother, had been coming, and uh, over a course of time, sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word here, he came to understand that he had not had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And just a few weeks ago, he made that decision and received Christ as his uh, Lord and Savior. And as a result of that, has been making some other incredible uh, steps in his spiritual journey. But if you are a part of Joe's family or life group, and you've come this morning to celebrate uh, this day in his life, would you stand? <laughs> Joe, let me ask you this. Have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss and is it your desire to be marked as a follower of His? Yes, I have. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. Right. Woo! Thank you.